Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I'm pleased to welcome Audio Technica back as presenting partner for Season 4 of Let's Talk About Sects. Their support has meant a lot, and their equipment is a huge reason why the show sounds great. Be sure to check out their creator pack if you're looking at content creation yourself. And if you're not a producer, get onto their home audio setups to get your home entertainment on point. Find out more at audio-technica.com.au. As a disaffected Canadian youth, Shannon Bundock was drawn to progressive ideas. In her late teens, she moved into the city, to a poor neighbourhood in Vancouver, and became hyper-aware of the inequality all around her. The people who were trying to do something about this inequality in the early 2000s, through activism around housing and other social justice issues, ignited her passion for radical politics. At 19, Shannon was ready to dedicate herself wholeheartedly to doing her part to change the world for the better. Five and a half years later, she'd find herself flat broke and unable to make life decisions about the simplest things, such as what to wear. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we continue, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening to. Nobody seems to know the age of Ali Yerovani, or whether what they've been told about his background is accurate. He also goes by the name Ali Azadi Karazi, and claims to have been involved with the Iranian Revolution before leaving the country for Europe, the United States, and then Canada, where he's been notorious in socialist activist circles around Vancouver since the turn of the century. Ali contributed to a 2014 collection of essays about Canadian solidarity with Cuba, and his biography in that book reads as follows. 
Ali Yerevani Azadi Karazi was born to a Tatar Turk family in Gorgon, Iran. In high school, he joined the underground movement against the US puppet monarch. He moved to the US in 1975 and became active in the Iranian students' movement. He returned to Iran in 1979 to join the Iranian Revolution as a revolutionary socialist organiser. He left Iran in late 1984 and since then has been a social justice organiser in Europe, the US and Canada. On his LinkedIn profile, it says that Ali studied informatics in Austria at the Vienna University of Technology from 1986 to 1990, then management information systems at Los Angeles City College from 1993 to 1996, and finally computer and information sciences at California State University, Long Beach, from 1996 to 1997. Some point after 1997, Ali headed to Vancouver, and it seems not to have been in search of work in information systems. The Anti-Poverty Committee's now-defunct website described it as an organisation of poor and working people who fight for poor people, their rights, and an end to poverty by any means necessary. Based in Vancouver, they organised various forms of activism around housing and justice initiatives. Shannon Bundock was drawn to radical politics from her teenage years, and when she moved to the city, she found herself living in downtown Eastside Vancouver, which was a very poor neighbourhood. Her exposure to other activists in the area encouraged her to get more involved with their causes, and she started contributing to the work of the Anti-Poverty Committee. It was before there was safe injection sites or like really um, harm reduction supplies in the city. And we would run a needle exchange in the nighttime, like at a really busy corner where there was a lot of people using drugs. The cops would come and try to shut it down. We would try to film them. And like a lot of that kind of work actually contributed to Vancouver having like the first safe injection site in North America. And we just did other stuff around housing activism and helping people get on income assistance. It was through her involvement with the Anti-Poverty Committee that Shannon met Ali Yerevani. I was 19 at the time. It was 2002. And at that point, Ali orchestrated a split within the Anti-Poverty Committee, and he managed to take seven of us from that group to form Fire This Time. And I sided with him in that split because I just like agreed with the criticisms that he had of the group. He wanted to form an organization that was more serious. He criticized them for being like loose and anarchistic and saying that that structure like allowed people with more privilege, like white men to be dominant. And it like just reproduced the systems of oppression that we were ostensibly against. Um, And so all of those things just really resonated with me. And I believed that leaving with him to form fire this time was the best way for me to do radical political work. For a period of years, Shannon was one of the people who knew Ali best. And even she couldn't shed a great deal of light on Ali's background. I mean, I know I've met people. He was a member of the Socialist Workers Party in the U.S., which is like the party that Trotsky initially founded um, after being kicked out of the USSR. And a lot of, yeah, a lot of their education materials were, were used to teach me. And like, I have this still kind of like support for a lot of their history and he got expelled from that party he told us he was expelled from that party 
they had some speakers come to Vancouver because they're in the U.S. at some point, and we had some contact with them, and it seemed to corroborate that they knew him and that he had been involved. It's just, I just feel like I'm skeptical about everything. I'm like, what was he doing in the Iranian Revolution? Like, apparently his father was like a really wealthy doctor and he had been sent to the U.S. and then the revolution happened and he got he came back to Iran. I don't know. I just feel skeptical about everything he, he claims. The full name of the organisation they launched in 2003 is Fire This Time Movement for Social Justice. The name is a reference to James Baldwin's book about white supremacy and black oppression in America, The Fire Next Time. One of the other founding members was a man named Ivan Drury, who writes, The principal analysis of FTT is that the entire left in Canada is hopelessly corrupt. The status quo left, SQL. With fire this time, Ali and the seven recruits wanted to make a few improvements on the way things had been run with the Anti-Poverty Committee. It was mainly around like the structure and like political direction and the criticisms were that the anti-poverty committee was just too loose and like undisciplined and that and as a result people were having these kind of like making decisions amongst friend groups and cliques um and he was saying we need to have like a more serious um and disciplined like structure that those things can't happen um and i think people were honestly like very open to having those discussions but the way he convinced us to go forward with this was by forming a faction that was called Anti-Poverty Committee Members for Restructuring and Reorganizing. And then we wrote this political program um, and then presented it as like a finished document to the organization and basically said, adopt this program or we leave. Um, and in the same time, in the midst of all this, there was like elections happening for the steering committee of the organization. So we got like, a, I think maybe there's 10 people on the steering committee. And so we got like four people elected to it. And then like in protest, because they wouldn't accept the program, like immediately resigned and like put out a letter denouncing them. He told me years later that he had like planned this split long before it ever happened. And he'd been... Um, kind of like shopping around organizations within Vancouver um, after coming to the city. And he had like identified the Anti-Poverty Committee as uh, the most um, possible to recruit from. And so he entered into that organization and then like intentionally orchestrated this split. Founding member Ivan Drury later wrote in an open letter, FTT is the production of the vision of one man, Ali Yerevani. He did a one-man entry into the Anti-Poverty Committee, as he had in numerous groups before, with the purpose of dragging out with him some recruits for his own vanguard group. Unfortunately, I was among those who left with him. Shannon Bundock's first impressions of Ali Aravani had been less than positive. I mean, I think he can be very likable. He can be like funny and charismatic. Um, and he's also like very confident um, and intense, which I think draws people to him. Um, 
when I first met him, I actually didn't like him when we were first in the anti-poverty committee. I thought he was like very aggressive and scary. I remember him just like screaming at people in meetings and I was confused about what was going on. Um, but then I think he saw that I had like some potential to like convince to come over to his side and he started talking to me one-on-one -on -one and really just directly challenging um, my resistance to supporting him. Um, and he questioned just a lot of things that I took for granted. And at that point, I was very young and it was really exciting. I feel like it like broke open my mind. Um, he would question why I was offended by someone yelling in a meeting. Um, and that would be because I was brainwashed by petty bourgeois, white Canadian politeness, um, or why I resisted having a formal structure um, and that was because I benefited from an unaccountable system that like allowed the most privileged people to wield power. And I found it exciting to have these belief systems exposed and broken down. And I had believed I was like a radical and Ali was showing me that I wasn't. And I had so much work to do um, and how much bourgeois ideology had formed my thinking and was still impacting me. And I think it made me want to like prove that I was serious and willing to sacrifice um, an easy life in the interest of of a greater cause. I think I like wanted to be recruited at that point. In case you're not familiar with the term petty bourgeois, and it'll come up a bit in this episode, the Marxist's Internet Archive Encyclopedia defines this as the class of small proprietors, like small shop owners, as well as the growing group of workers who manage the production, distribution and or exchange of commodities and or services owned by their bourgeois employers. It continues, While these workers are a part of the working class because they receive a wage and their livelihood is dependent on that wage, they are separated from working class consciousness because they have day-to-day -day control, but not ownership, over the means of production, distribution and exchange. The seven recruits from the Anti-Poverty Committee dropped down to five core members who were dedicated to running the new organisation. And it was myself um, and Ali, and then there was two probably mid-20s, 24-year-old young men who both had more political experience than I did as far as radical activism, and then Ali's partner at the time, um, who had also participated in the Iranian Revolution. Um, she had spent time in prison in Iran, um, and she came to Canada as a refugee, I believe, like, via Turkey. Um, she had a political experience um, and probably could have had a lot more authority in the group, but she was in this relationship with Ali where he was, like, very domineering. Shannon guessed Ali's age to have been around 50 in the early 2000s. But then an ex-member who wrote an anonymous blog post about her experiences in FIRE this time said that Ali was in his mid to late 50s in 2014. The two young male founding members were Ivan Drury and Indigenous activist Mike Krebs. Aside from Ali and his partner, FIRE this time skewed young, and the focus was on bringing enthusiastic student-aged radicals into the fledgling movement and Ali shifted his romantic attention to a teenage recruit pretty soon too. From then, like, we primarily focused on recruiting young people, um, and the core cadre organization during my whole time were people in their, like, mid to, or, like, early to mid-20s. 
um, we would also try to recruit high school students, um, but it wasn't as successful because they didn't have as much freedom. Um, and right after we formed, I, I was like living in a house, um, a punk house with probably like 12 other people. And I did my best to bring as many people from my personal life to events and meetings to introduce them to Fire This Time and to Ali. And we recruited a number of them, one of whom was just out of high school. Um, her name was Tamara. And Ali began, began like a romantic relationship with her pretty quickly after she was recruited. Shannon told me about how Fire This Time's operations differed from the work she had been doing with the Anti-Poverty Committee. Fire This Time had more of an international focus. I mean, it was similar in the sense that, yeah, we were organizing like uh, demonstrations and like forums and meetings, um, but it was definitely more focused um, on on anti-war organizing. It was like January 2003 when the formation officially happened and I think it was March 2003 when the U.S. invaded Iraq Um, and that was just a huge mobilization like globally and so that was something we were like very much focused on in the beginning Um, and Fire this time like became a member of the anti-war coalition um, and started bringing young people in and then formed a youth organization in order to like have a body to like recruit people to that didn't require like a extremely high level of commitment. Um, and then that youth organization worked with fire this time in the anti-war coalition in a kind of hostile way, honestly, to the rest of the organization. The youth organisation was called Youth Third World Alliance, also known as Y3WA. I feel like we functioned like an opposition within, it was called StopWar.ca, and it was really broad. A lot of the organisations involved were like labour unions, and there was like, you know, peace organisations, different groups and different solidarity groups, and we felt, or our analysis at the time was that there was this labor leadership that was trying to hold back the movement and trying to stifle growth um, because their whole function was in order to suppress the organizing of poor and working people. And it was our job to try to push that forward. Um, So we would, you know, organize events that weren't approved by the by the group. We basically just tried to be as active as possible. Um, it established like an outreach committee that was like hyperactive and brought people in. And like, I think Ali would just constantly, anytime there was a p- potential for conflict, he would just try to stoke that as much as possible. And then in that fight, um, he would be like training people about Um, Like, you know, that these people were our enemies. They were against, like, movement building. Um, Eventually, we got expelled from the organization. Communist Party of Canada newspaper editor and Vancouver activist Kimball Carriou wrote, I know Ali Yerevani quite well from his time in the Stop War Peace Coalition, which he and other FTT members joined in late 2002, immediately after their expulsion from the Anti-Poverty Committee. 
From the beginning, Ali and Ivan Drury led a determined attempt to seize control of stop war, using tactics of disruption, division and intimidation at every meeting. I vividly remember Ivan Drury, a large, muscular man, shaking his fist right in the face of the much smaller Mabel Elmore as she desperately tried to chair one such meeting while things spun out of control. Finally, the majority of groups involved in stop war decided that we had three options. Fold up the coalition, turn it over to FTT or expel them. We chose the latter option, which was supported by a 24-2 vote of participating organisations. This experience left many of us in fear of the FTT group. For a long time, I refused to even be in the same room as Ali Aravani or Ivan Drury. The ongoing attempts by the FTT and subordinate groups to achieve total hegemony over various political struggles have also driven many activists to the sidelines or in search of safe zones for political work. Ivan Drury later wrote about hacking into a Stop War member's emails. Quote, While joking with Yerevani and Mike Krebs that most far-leftists in Vancouver probably used some combination revolutionary names as email account passwords, I tested my joke on Derek O'Keefe's account. And the account opened. Under Ali's direction, Derek's emails were then published in the Fire This Time newspaper, given to the media, and put online, where you can still access them today. This was supposedly in the name of an FTT defence campaign. One from member Charlie Demers on the 3rd of September 2003 included, FTT has to go and I make no bones about that. I have worked with Ali before and have found him to be a manipulative, unethical, hypocritical and destructive force. Ivan is a confused, arrogant, belligerent man-boy that can't be counted on to make it through a half-hour period without a serious change of political direction, usually ordered from above. They are a toxic presence in the meetings, general and otherwise, and I'll breathe a sigh of relief when they finally storm out and let those of us who are really responsible for bringing radical politics to this coalition get on with our work. End quote. Ivan admitted to helping Ali employ similarly disruptive tactics in other groups they were allowed into, which were often student groups. Of Ali's methods, he wrote, While recruiting, Yerevani would use his charm and charisma to make young people, and predominantly young women, feel important and exceptional. However, this sense of exceptionalism came with the steep price of complete devotion to Yerevani. Initially, it sounded like FIRE this time and Youth Third World Alliance were organising lots of meetings and demonstrations, publishing their newspaper and handing it out, and participating in the kinds of activities you'd expect from a young socialist group, though alienating a fair few people along the way due to their less-than-collaborative modus operandi. Shannon feels that internally, things evolved for the worse. I think that over time, the level of expectation increased. I think Ali did it actually very systematically and carefully so that the demands that were expected of us for like time commitment and like what we were willing, what control we were willing to give over to the group, um, he would kind of push you to your boundary, but then pull back a little bit 
And then over time, it just got normal to, you know, not be making a decision about where you lived or, um, you know, only sleeping a few hours a night, um, which I don't think I would have just automatically done at the very beginning. Um, and I think it kind of happened slow. I mean, slowly within probably a year, it got to like the level where all of my like decision making had been like handed over to the organization, which meant to Ellie. Dedication to fire this time involves a massive time investment alongside any work or school commitments. Those in the inner circle are known as organisers, and if you can't devote all of your spare time, you're not allowed on the internal committee and remain a mere supporter on the fringes. Our schedules, like, required attending and conducting front organisation meetings, and we ran two main front organisations, and then there was probably about a dozen smaller, like, uh, campus coalitions on all the different, like, universities and colleges. Um, We would run different events like forums or film showings. We'd do petition drives, press conferences, protests. And then also everyone in the cadre organization was required to distribute the organization's newspaper um, early in the morning at rush hour and also to like poster for different events very late into the night. And we also had to write um, and email reports on every like event, every meeting, every conversation we had um, that was related to our political work. Um, We also were all assigned contacts that we had to stay in connection with and also be trying to get money from all of the time um, or be trying to recruit closer to the organization. I actually have these notebook pages I found from two different members who I guess were made to write down their minute by minute schedules and like submit them to me um, probably so that they could be criticized for like poor time management, but it's like wild. Like it's like 8 AM to 4:30 AM, just constant activity going. And then people were working or going to school. Shannon sent me over a couple of these handwritten schedules and they're hectic right through the weekend with early rises, often for work shifts, after postering runs and report writing starting at 2 or 3am the night before. Core FTT members were living together in communal housing, and the money from their regular jobs would go back into the organisation. We did a thing that I I mean, basically like a turn to industry where everybody was um, supposed to get trades, and under the like guys that we were going to like intervene in labor unions. Um, I think it was because this is a bunch of like 20 year olds who are working crappy jobs and Ellie wanted us to get jobs where we would make good money um, and have more money to contribute. But all of the people in the cadre organization were um, like required to pay dues that would pay Ali directly. Um, and for a time, um, it was decided I wouldn't work. And so my expenses were paid um, by the organization. Um, but it, nobody could have anything like extra beyond what they needed for like really basic necessities. Shannon studied welding and got her welding ticket. But still today, she can't bring herself to do welding work because it brings up too many loaded emotions. Shannon explained how all of FTT's various offshoots worked to identify potential revolutionary cadre. Well, 
we we had these front organizations. So we had an anti-war organization called Mobilization Against War and Occupation that we formed after getting expelled from the main anti-war coalition. So people would come to those meetings. They were like advertised publicly or people would come to events. They'd be invited to meetings. Um, so there's a lot of people involved in that organization who weren't in like the core group. Um, and there'd be people identified within that organization who had the potential to be recruited. Um, and then we also had a Cuba solidarity group that functioned in the same way um, where we would like recruit people from that. We didn't work with other organizations very often unless we were able to like, I don't know, take them over or recruit from them, which wasn't very possible because we already had a really bad reputation in the left in Vancouver. Like people were already calling us a cult like in 2003. Um, so a lot of people were like new to politics or were just like unconnected um, people who probably wouldn't have the confidence to like criticize the way that we were functioning. Um, but yeah, Youth Third World Alliance meetings, the youth organization, we would... Um, be assigned contacts in those meetings. Um, we would report on like people who were getting close and they would be like assigned to people, which they didn't know. Like a lot of people were brought on as friends or sometimes even like romantic interests. Um, but we like, we would literally say like recruitment by any means necessary. I asked Shannon about how Ali and the other FTT members responded to the accusations of being a cult. I mean, we talked about it all the time. Like, I, Ellie definitely didn't, like, shy away from discussing it. And it was just that people were lazy social Democrats who, like, weren't serious about movement building. Obviously, they were going to call us a cult because they didn't understand what it was to be, you know, serious about revolutionary work. It was, like, easy to deflect. And I believed that at the time. I honestly think that some of the accusations of that were based on people just being like, they're too active. And they just didn't know that like, actually what they were saying was so true. And like, Ali was like, literally controlling every aspect of our lives and like, screaming at us and humiliating us. Um, they just like, you know, were like, they're really active, they're really wild, like, they must be a cult. And I mean, he used an already established ideology. He wasn't like making up like a new, like wacky set of beliefs. And so that ideology wouldn't have like allowed him to like financially benefit. Not to say that there aren't like whatever Trotskyist or Marxist like cults where somebody's getting a lot of material benefit, but he also was able to then use his lack of material benefit to like prove that this wasn't a cult. Um, that was like one of the arguments. Ivan Drury listed the following groups that he includes under his references to FTT on his website, No Fire, No Time, which he created as an archive of materials he collated after leaving. FTT, Y3WA, MAWO, which stands for Mobilisation Against War and Occupation, Vancouver Communities in Solidarity with Cuba, or VCSC, the Free the Cuban Five Committee, Vancouver and Courtenay, FC5, Indigenous Rights and Action Project, IRAP, the May 1 Organising Committee of 2005, Communities in Solidarity with Hospital Workers, Coalition for a United Latin America, etc. And then also the student groups, Coalition Against War on the People of Iraq and Internationally, Langara United Against War and Occupation, 
Capilano Students Against War, SFU Marwo, Douglas Students Against War and Occupation, Student Youth Committee Against War, and more. There are many acronyms, and I'll avoid most so as to be less confusing, but you can see what Shannon means when she refers to the various front organisations. The main one to remember outside of FTT and Y3WA is MAWO, or the Mobilisation Against War and Occupation, as that acronym is one sometimes used to refer to the Holter Mosle. In spite of their constant interactions with student populations, Aaron Miller wrote for Maclean's in March 2008, A number of students connected to MAWO reported that members are only permitted to enrol in post-secondary institutions if they take approved courses only mostly language courses such as Spanish that would allow the members to communicate with comrades while avoiding the risk of poisoning their minds with petty bourgeois higher education. Shannon sent me a spreadsheet listing all of the events they organised from late 2003 to mid-2007. The 2006 column holds an incredible 104 events, and 2007 was on track to beat it, with 79 events from January to mid-July. Though the many front organisations' events were nurtured as fertile grounds for recruitment, in Shannon's experience, the core group always hovered around the same fairly small numbers. She thinks that anything above that number would be trickier for Ali to exert as much control over. In the in like the actual like cadre organisation, there was probably between fifteen and twenty people, and it always was around that. Uh, that's the other thing where I'm like, where's this idea of expansion? I don't know at this point. I know they have different front organizations now. They have like a, um, what's that? Like an environmental group called like Climate Convergence, which obviously like that's like a movement that is led by like teenagers. So of course they would create an organization that could like recruit those kids. Uh but yeah, it's hard to say. It was like around 20 people. That we created an image that made it seem like we were a lot bigger. And like more people came to the front organizations. Um, and we did a lot of things that, yeah, just created an illusion of like size and activity. A Y3WA history package from November 2006 that was provided to new members included a report on a March 2005 meeting in which a man, quote, asked us if we have a perspective of becoming a national organisation, and we said that we have no choice, staying in Vancouver only would mean death. As far as Shannon is aware, 15 years later, it's still Vancouver only. Youth Third World Alliance might have originally been created as a group that required less time commitment, but that didn't seem to remain the case. Former Y3WA member Ian Beeching's experiences sound pretty full-on. Quote, The internal discipline included two mandatory education classes a week that were at least three hours each. One mandatory Y3WA meeting that could go from 8pm or 9pm to 3am in the morning a MAWO meeting, a VCSC meeting, your campus anti-war group and all the political assignments, such as postering or making a leaflet. We had on top of, for me, what was a 40-hour work week. There was also always tabling, rallies and picket. When I wasn't meeting the expectations, special meetings with Ali and Ivan were arranged for me. 
Shannon described a typical Y3WA meeting to me. I mean, they would start like close to midnight or they'd be scheduled to start then because it was like when people were available. But like inevitably, Ali wouldn't show up immediately because he'd be like working on something that was like beyond our level of understanding. And we were just expected to wait. But also we were expected to like use that time. So you had to figure out like, oh, I should be reading some sort of education material or like doing a task because if you like caught you not using this like weird purgatory time of waiting for him to show up to the meeting um, then it would just get delayed further because he'd like then he would like deal with your like transgression at that point Um, and we were all like a lot of people had to wake up at like six or seven in the morning because they had jobs they had to go to and these meetings would go to like three or four and a lot of them were just Ali lecturing or just like criticizing someone um, for whatever mistake they'd made. Like if they had like forgotten to like pick up some posters from somewhere or, and nothing was like a simple mistake. It was always like a reflection of your like lack of revolutionary development. It was like, cause you were like lazy and you were putting your personal needs ahead of the movement Um, people would be falling asleep in the meetings and they'd be made to stand up or put like ice on their necks in order to stay awake. Um, And nobody wanted to get sent to bed. Like that would be shameful. So people would just do it. Ian Beeching wrote, Common practice while I was in Y3WA was maxing out credit cards, sleeping four or five hours a night until you got terribly ill, breaking relations with your petty bourgeois girlfriend and parents, calling Ali, Shannon or Ivan every time a decision had to be made, and only reading selected articles and fire this time. Ivan Drury wrote, Inside the group, Yerevani is a tyrant who tolerates zero dissent to his absolute control. Discussions in meetings consist of two or three hour lectures from Yerevani. Democratic centralism means agreeing with and enforcing his often arbitrary and mood-swinging political rulings on the fly. Organisational norms mean constant phone contact with him to receive constant marching orders on everything from speakers' lists and the admission of opponents to events, to which button to wear on which side of your coat. No joke. These norms also address every aspect of personal life, like how to hang car keys, what clothes women members are allowed to wear, how to invite someone to coffee, how to flush a toilet. Yerevani actually, shortly before I left, forced every member of Y3WA to sign up on a schedule to clean the bathroom in his house every day for a month because someone had clogged the toilet. End quote. Ivan views Ali as having encouraged this kind of dependency on him. Quote, he even rationalises his authority by citing the lineage of his revolutionary ideas back to Lenin, evoking the tired claims of being the one true inheritor of the Bolshevik legacy. Yerevani enforces the idea in the group that rebellion against him is egotistical and a sign of petty bourgeois tendencies. Shannon had a striking example of a test of this authority. We had, like, required, like, hiking that we would have to go on, um, and we had to go on the, up to this area where there's like a highway that's very twisty and busy. And at one point, Ellie was like, okay, everyone needs to cross. It was like really busy. It was a blind corner. 
and he was like when I tell you to go you just have to go like whether or not you think a car is coming and we did it and one person didn't do it um, because he was afraid he was going to like get hit by a car and die <laughs> and Ellie like laid into him and was like if you think you're going to die you don't violate like your your discipline you listen to your leadership and I mean, I also probably felt like I was putting myself at risk, but I wasn't violate that. It just became like, it made me think about like all the tests that they would do in like Jonestown to be like, drink this, like prove, prove your loyalty by putting yourself in a position where you think you could die. And even though you're not going to like, just prove that you, you would. And it just felt like he was doing that test, you know? And if somebody didn't do it, then they were, you know, laid into. It enraged him. I asked Shannon whether she felt so dedicated at this point that she didn't see the harm in the ways that FTT members were being treated. And she said that she did see it. That she felt all the time like she was in a state of resistance and resentment. Ali would be yelling at us. I'd just be like willing him to stop. But... The tension was that the other half of me was like, all of this resistance and resentment is just a reflection of my, like, corruption and that I needed to fight against that. Um, And I believed that too. So my, like, instinctual feelings that, like, what was happening was wrong, I rationalized that even feeling that was wrong. And that's something I needed to, like, rid myself of um and so I struggled with it and because no nobody would like uh nobody would corroborate your feelings like nobody would talk about um you know what Ali said was like really abusive or or terrible no so you were just alone in your thoughts and your resentment being like I'm the only one who feels this way Um, And you would never want to, like, be the person to um, be singled out for, like, opposing him. Ali was also very good at recognising the impact that his words and actions had on his followers. It was, like, explicitly talked about, um, like, even, like, the accusations of being a cult. Like, it wasn't, like, a subject that um, wasn't explained. And so... He would say, I know you hate me right now. I know you think this, you know, he would name everything you were thinking. And then he would explain to you why that was because you were like petty bourgeois, because you wanted an easy life, because you like, you know, didn't have a revolutionary consciousness. Are you still wondering why members put up with all of this? Ian Beeching explained, when in the organisation, I believed that there was no alternative that Y3WA was the only true revolutionary group probably in all of North America. Having devoted so much time, money and passion to a project, it is very difficult to just let it go. Ivan Drury came to believe that the main purpose of FTT was sectarian. Quote, 
FTT has never involved itself in a coalition or founded a committee or worked on a project or written an article or taken on a campaign or done anything for any reason other than for the purpose of cadre building. The construction of a pure revolutionary cadre has stood above all other purposes as the driving motivation of FTT. In its public announcement of the formation of Fire This Time Movement for Social Justice on the 10th of January 2003, the organisation said, We are dedicated to mobilising and unifying a broad range of poor and working people against the Liberal government and their anti-poor, anti-working people legislations and policies. I asked Shannon her experience of how effectively the group worked to achieve this goal. I mean, I don't know if that's really even the intention as a short-term goal. Like, I think that was kind of trying to appeal to, like, the idea that, like, mass mobilization of the work class was, like, our ultimate goal um, and that we wanted to, like, contribute to building a movement. And then it set the foundation for then we need to build a leadership. Um, Any mobilization that we participated in were just, like, results of objective external factors, like people just reacting to terrible things that were happening, like coming to the streets because the U.S. was invading Iraq. Um, And then we were supposed to, like, be building this cadre organization that could provide direction and leadership um, to these, like, mass mobilizations. Um, And with that said, I don't think that we ever did any of this. I think that we just, like, had a presence when people were like amped up and then were able to like suck people into the cult with because of that energy. In an internal report dated the 8th of October 2006, following a couple of weeks of Cuban solidarity work that culminated in a conference, Ivan Drury wrote, The end of September presented some great challenges for Y3WA in the form of an intense level of work both in quantity and quality. These two weeks gave us a great opportunity to examine and test, one, our political strength and influence in Vancouver and beyond as gained over three to four years of intense and constant work, two, our ability as a revolutionary team and as revolutionary individuals to respond to and build upon our position of political strength and influence. He continued further down the report, For us, these two weeks of work took place within the context of our overall work to build a revolutionary leadership capable of leading a revolutionary movement in Canada. For us, this conference was important, first and foremost, as a test of our capacity as a revolutionary team. It was not the beginning or the end of anything, but another step in the process of our very long road. How long that road may be remains to be seen. Another 15 years later, it doesn't appear that the immediate goal of building a leadership capable of taking forward the revolution in Canada has gotten an awful lot further, let alone making any progress on longer-term goals. Fire This Time's inner circle were encouraged to believe that they were special. Ivan wrote, The philosophy of the group is that an individual must be exceptional to be a member of this group, to be a true revolutionary in a time and place like this. If the group is the revolutionary exception, and if the members are all the revolutionary exception, then surely they stand as exception to all the rest of the left. Thus, you are with us or against us. Thus, one rule applies for what is done to us, and one for what we do to our opponents, especially in the radical left. 
every single principle that is traditional or expected of the left, or hell, of a decent person, has been systematically sacrificed in order to build the cadre under the umbrella of exceptionalism. Shannon experienced another side to Ali's assertion that she was exceptional too. He would tell me, um, like, that... If I left, I was like different and I would never be able to have a regular life and I would definitely just kill myself. Um, And it was this twisted way of like telling me I was special and that like I couldn't live like a regular person, but then also threatening me like if you leave, you will eventually just kill yourself. Um, And I like believed it. And I don't know, like maybe I wanted to believe it because it made me feel like exceptional or special, but it was like a really cruel thing. I asked Shannon whether there was the kind of us and them mentality that you usually find in cults. Yeah, I mean, definitely if people weren't um, in our like contacts or peripheries or like people were trying to recruit, um, we considered like the left in general, like our opponents. Um, There were some organizations that we would like form alliances with, but they would primarily be groups that were outside of our city. Um, I think that any organizations that were in the same city uh, as us would see how we were operating and would cut off contact with us. but having these like more distant organizational relationships was functional to like provide some sort of legitimacy um, in the eyes of, I don't know, both our supporters and um, our opponents. But as far as people in, like people around us who were also organizing, we referred to most of these groups as like the status quo left. Um, we also cr- criticized groups that were more similar to us as being ultra leftist. Um, There were some organizations that Ali would like praise, but only like in their historical form. Um, There's like the Socialist Workers Party in the US um, who we would read a lot of their education materials from like um, many years ago, but he had taught us they had bureaucratized and they were no longer a viable organization. and then, yeah, the only, the only, uh, I don't know, it's not an organization. Like we, we supported Cuba. That's like the only thing that we were like uncritical about. Um, but also it's like, you know, that's a whole country. It's not like an organization that's going to like threaten Ali's power over his like small cult. And they supported us like in Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't I don't blame them. We were doing a lot of work in support of Cuba. But I at one point, the ambassador of Cuba to Canada referred to us in this like conference as their young army in Vancouver. And I was like, so affirmed by that. I was like, yes, we are, you know, and. Of course they would. Like, they're not going to go into the details of, like, you know, how these groups are working. They were just like, whoa, there's, like, dozens of young people who are, like, talking about Cuba. And the rest of the country is a bunch of, like, you know, 80-year-old members of the Communist Party who, you know, can't get anyone to come to their events. So, of course, they were, like, supportive. 
The Y3WA history package for new members included the following. The Fire This Time movement for social justice will support and engage with other progressive movements and struggles, whether for immediate or long-term demands, locally, nationally and internationally. Our main goal is to end poverty and injustice through education, participation and direct action. We seek to reach a collective level of consciousness that allows oppressed people to think socially and act politically to achieve social justice by any means necessary. I asked whether there was anything concrete that Shannon felt that Fire This Time did achieve during her time with the organisation. No, I mean, uh, I guess the closest thing would be the Cuba Solidarity organization that we ran was like unusually active for Canada, probably like for Cuba Solidarity work in North America. It was like mostly young people did work constantly and maybe that helped contribute to like the campaign against the imprisonment of the Cuban Five. I don't know. I don't think that there was anything really effective um, from like that the any of the organizations front groups did that actually like contributed honestly like if there was coalition work anything all we did was like go in and either take over or destroy things um it was like if we couldn't gain control then we were going to like stack a meeting and like dissolve the group ivan wrote about an example of this I did more to sour relations between the Indigenous community and the Marxist left. When the Six Nations struggle against illegal colonial land development broke out, solidarity campaigns began all across Canada. FTT immediately felt the pinch of the negative reputation we had built up in Vancouver, including in the Indigenous movement. Regardless of the strain this put on the newly formed solidarity group, FTT pushed hard against its exclusion. Even when we were not called for a meeting, we were determined to hunt down the location and attempt to crash the meeting. Mere days before the big Vancouver action, we succeeded in distracting the entire organising group to focus instead on a long discussion of whether or not FTT would be allowed in the meeting. We were not. Then, even after being very respectfully dealt with by a leader of the group, in a small meeting facilitated by elders from the DTES Women's Centre, we crashed the demonstration with banners high. I accepted an invitation to help out as a security marshal, an exclusively Indigenous position in the march. Foolishly, I took every position that we had clamoured for like gulls and been allowed out of decency or pity or concession as our success, having convinced myself that FTT was integrated and playing a real revolutionary role in the Indigenous movement. Of course, we were not. Part of Fire This Time's Code of Conduct states, No Fire This Time member can a. perform any act of physical or verbal assault against any other Fire This Time member, b. violate the honour or dignity of any Fire This Time member. I asked Shannon to tell me whether this teed up with her experiences in the group. No, I think it's like a statement that's in line with Ali's like the ideological traditions that Ali uses to, like, manipulate people. Um, But I think he's just, like, co-opting progressive politics to, like, draw people in. 
Um, I think he actually like straight up exploits people around him constantly. And he in particular preys on young women under this like guise of promoting women's leadership and like fighting sexism. But the reality is the closer you are to him, the more abuse you have to take from him. And I think uses his position as a man to dominate women like more severely than he'd be able to um, with men. Um, and I think like all of his ideological statements are just noise. Um, it's actually like hard for me to like process sometimes because I like read about radical working class history and I like identify with it or like I hear about things and I feel like I identify with that like legacy and that tradition and then I need to remind myself like it's not true like nothing I was doing because this is like from when I started doing political work it was with him and everything I was doing was actually like causing harm I wasn't, you know, continuing the work of revolutionaries that came before me. I was like serving this one man. It's like, it's confusing and like pretty destabilizing. On the points around prohibiting acts of physical or verbal assault, much of what Shannon had told me definitely sounded like it would fit within an average person's definition of verbal assault. I mean, yeah, and I, that's just interpreted. I, however, he decides like what verbal assault is, like because he would constantly do things that I think probably you or I would just automatically consider verbal assault or violating the dignity of someone. Um, but it was all okay because it was like for the sake of people's revolutionary development, um, and he was actually doing you a favor by putting this like time and energy into like teaching you something. Mike Krebs, one of the original founding members of FIRE this time, resigned in 2005. He wrote to the organisation stating that he was leaving due to family reasons and would make the transition as smooth as possible with a detailed handover of his tasks. Two days later, Mike wrote an open letter dated the 5th of May 2005 that Ivan has published on his blog, No Fire, No Time. Quote, I'm writing this statement to inform as many left progressive individuals and groups as possible about the unprincipled attacks, threats, intimidation and physical assault that I have been subjected to by some members of FIRE this time, since I informed the organisation that I was resigning. FTT and Y3WA responded in a public letter that they flatly denied all of Mike's charges, and that his claims of a reactionary campaign against him were a delusional fantasy. Ali and Ivan had pushed Mike for a meeting regarding a final decision on his departure, which Mike resisted as he had already made his final decision and didn't wish to elaborate on his reasons for leaving. Of such meetings, Ivan later wrote, I carried out exit meetings on members who resigned or tried to resign. These involved attempts to humiliate and degrade these people so that whatever was left of their confidence would be broken so badly that they would not get involved in any other group and become our opponents. Usually the meetings worked and these people left politics altogether. In taking account of his former actions as part of FIRE this time a couple of years later, Ivan wrote this about Mike's leaving. I harassed and threatened him over the phone. I drove Yaravani to the grocery store where both Mike Krebs and I worked. 
I stood guard at the back door while Yerevani went in the front. I watched from the back door while Yerevani assaulted Mike Krebs by the cash registers. While it was not a planned action, and though I was shocked and appalled at what I'd witnessed, I said nothing at the time nor when asked about it by a sceptical member of Y3WA afterwards. I defended Yerevani to another founding member, Nasim Sedegat, when she confronted him at a meeting days after the assault, and then I remained silent when she resigned on the spot. And I lied about this series of incidents every time I was asked by others in the left. From Y3WA's response to Mike's open letter, quote, Fire this time and Youth Third World Alliance have held a joint meeting to discuss your second letter. We have decided that on the basis of the ultimatums, lies and slander you have put forward in your two letters, you are expelled from Youth Third World Alliance. It continued, We acted towards you with good faith, care for you as a human being, and trust, and you have responded with the sharpest premeditated betrayal. Now you are on a different path. Do whatever you want to do. It's your history on the line. Because of your reckless and irresponsible behaviour, we are cutting all lines of communication with you. We will entertain no correspondence with you, will not meet with you directly or indirectly through your cloak and dagger fantasies, and you are barred from attending or participating in any meetings, events or actions we organise. Shannon was a signatory to this letter. She had been told that the assault didn't take place. I was taught for years that he never did that and that this was this insidious lie that had been told and that people in the left like just believed because they were against us. And then it wasn't until um, one of the people who had like witnessed him do this um, and, you know, assisted him in doing this left that I found out, oh, it was true. And like for years I'd been, you know, defending him. Um, yeah, he tried to leave. Ali went into his workplace, like ripped his glasses off his face, like broke them. I don't know. It's just he tried to like um, intimidate him into not leaving. Ian Beeching said, I had been told that Mike was mentally ill, that he was a traitor and going for an easy life and that Ali did not assault Mike. I believed all of these lies and even helped spread them. Interestingly, there's correspondence between Charlie Demers and members of Y3WA included in the history pack provided to new members that gives some insight into their general approach. Charlie was one of the people whose private emails to Derek O'Keefe about Ali and FTT were published during the Stop War rift. He wrote to a couple of Y3WA members on the 6th of May 2005, I know that you are dedicated activists and decent people. The situation in FTT has come to a point where I am worried about your safety. Please do not take this letter as an attempt at recruiting you or undermining you, please. I am begging you to look at what is happening to Mike and know that Ali could do this to anyone. I worked with Mike a thousand times before the whole FTT fallout. He is a brilliant and decent political person and you can't possibly abide what they are doing to him in good conscience. I don't want for Ali to be able to hurt any more people than he already has. You are all young and devoted revolutionaries with your whole lives worth of political struggle, thought and action ahead of you. Please see this attack on Mike for what it is, a bridge too far, and know that if you need any help or anything, you can come to me. Please do not be afraid to contact me simply because of past political conflicts. You have to know that what they are doing is wrong. 
In sincere solidarity, Charlie. Here's the reply, which was sent to a much wider resistance group list rather than just back to Charlie himself. In response to your email received one hour ago, there is no visible political point or argument within your opportunistic letter and only an accusatory, shallow and condescending approach to us and our organisation. You have maintained this undignified, disrespectful and indecent approach to us for a long period of time, and your email is no different from this. It is clear that you are waiting to take advantage of the degeneration of one of our former comrades. We reject your approach and would appreciate not to receive any more emails from you or anyone else in this manner. In regards to Mike's email, an appropriate written reply will be sent. One of the replies from a list member also reflects how I respond to them including all of this and more in the information pack for new members. Quote, What flabbergasts me is that they think that publicly distributing their frankly creepy responses to Mike, Charlie et al. does them any good. Shannon had been estranged from her father during her involvement with FIRE this time, which Ali supported, but she did manage to maintain a relationship with her mother. She thinks this is because it was never a very dependent relationship and didn't require much of her attention. He often talked about people's relationships with their parents as being toxic and needing to be cut off unless we could get something from them, unless people had parents who had money, then um, those relationships were like allowed Um, but I was never cut off from my mom, but I also never asked for things. I never asked to like go visit her. I never asked for time off. Um, and maybe he didn't see it as a threat. I didn't like talk to her on the phone really. Um, it was like fairly like distanced. And so maybe it just wasn't worth like pressuring me to cut off from her. Ivan wrote of an example of this. If a member was letting their petty bourgeois tendencies show, whether in a political mistake they made or by how they dressed, or if they looked tired or were feeling grumpy, Yerevani would show up at their door or call and demand a meeting. This meeting would usually take place in his bedroom, and he would bring along a witness, like me. The last of these meetings I attended was in the living room of the house that six of us lived in. Yerevani had three witnesses at that meeting, and let them do most of the interrogation. The subject was being berated for her petty bourgeois tendencies. The specific charge? That she was too attached to her parents. The evidence? That she was refusing to steal from their credit card to buy a computer for our movement. The meeting lasted over three hours. In the end, she caved to our extortion. I sat through the entire meeting and never spoke out against what was going on. I knew that I should have, even at the time, but I didn't. Romantic relationships were also impacted by Ali's opinion of them, and Shannon had personal experience in this. There wasn't, um, like, a directive about personal relationships, but they were definitely... He, he would teach us you either you recruit or you get recruited. So... If you're in a relationship with someone, you have to recruit them to the organization or else they will recruit you to a bourgeois life and it's going to inevitably come to a conclusion. Um, So they were okay if the person 
um, was already inside or that's not even true though. I was, I was made to break up with someone who was, I was dating for two years while I was inside because it was negatively affecting my revolutionary development. Um, and Ellie told me that I should break up with him. So I did. Um, and other, it was kind of just like relationships were allowed depending on his, you know, decision. Um, and you just wouldn't go against it. I wondered how this man reacted to Shannon breaking things off with him out of nowhere after two years. He was also inside and he was one of the people that I had like recruited from my house. And I had like, unfortunately, like more authority in the organization. Um, and so I just told him. I was like, we have to break up. And he was like upset about it. We were both very upset about it. We lived together. We had to move into separate houses. That was when I moved into um, a collective house for the first time. Um, Ali picked me up because I was so sad. And he like spent the whole day with me. And I think just was doing damage control to like make sure it would happen. Um, but the person... I broke up with, he agreed to it. I think it was like in October of 2005. And then he left about six months later. Um, and he left though, because he had actually had a bicycle accident and that got a head injury. And he was going to like physical therapy or something. Like it was quite bad. And Ali was criticizing him for like not doing some sort of task. And he said to him, I got shot in the head in Iran and I kept, and I kept working. I didn't stop. And this person was like, that was my breaking point. And I realized like, this is just crazy. Ivan Drury cut ties with Ali and fire this time in January, 2007. A year later, he wrote his open letter, dated the 3rd of February 2008, from which you've already heard a number of excerpts. Quote, I'm writing this letter to inform the left and progressive community that I have broken with fire this time, Mawo, and all other related groups. Through this letter, I also hope to begin to stand accountable for the many irresponsible and destructive things I am responsible for having done when I was a member of these groups. Ivan wrote that it had taken him a year to put out the open letter because emotionally and personally, his experience in the group really messed him up. Ivan's leaving hit Shannon hard. She later wrote in her own letter to those still in FTT and Y3WA, I was very angry and upset about Ivan leaving and I channeled my frustration into attacking him. I think that my assessment of Ivan had a big impact on keeping up the morale in Y3WA. Losing Ivan was hard for me because I relied on him to suppress my own aversion to Ali. If Ali demanded something stupid or crazy, I would naturally be frustrated. But if Ivan backed up Ali, then it was easier for me to convince myself that I was wrong to be frustrated. Unlike Ali, I could relate to Ivan because he was just another foot soldier like me. Unlike Ali, I naturally trusted Ivan. Honestly, I attacked Ivan's letter and resignation in order to convince myself that he was wrong. I already had these doubts and like having at least that one other person who'd like been with me from the beginning and was like, you know, affirming that what we were doing was like worth it. 
um, him leaving was really hard for me. Um, and I, I didn't leave for another year, but I slowly like started to rebel. I just like stopped doing certain like tasks, which was felt really intense at the time. I remember the first time I like, just refused to go postering. Um, and one of the other members came to my room and was like, we have to go. And I just said no. And she like looked at me like it was like the craziest thing someone had said to her. And I felt like that too. I felt like I was doing something so intense. Um, and during that year, I just also just made myself like very sick and I just stopped eating. Um, and every time like Ellie would do something that I like felt like I couldn't like um, oppose or like, you know, vocally disagree with, it would just like give me more resolve to like create this situation where I could like leave without having to say political differences. Shannon later wrote, I had in fact tried to leave before. Over the years, I packed my room about half a dozen times with the intention of leaving. Every time I did this, Ali would put an incredible amount of energy into convincing me that I couldn't go. When things got bad enough, I decided that the most secure route out was to make myself sick to such a degree that Ali could in no way argue that I should stay. I decided to destroy myself to a point that I would become useless to him. Shannon was made to see an organisationally mandated psychologist under directions from Ali that she wasn't to share anything about fire this time. I honestly think it was because Ali was trying to make me feel like I was like crazy and that I had to like defer more to him because he would debrief with me after every time I saw her. He would tell me like what she said was right and what was wrong. Um, he would tell me like my problems were all about my relationship with my father. So like I had to focus on that when I talked to her. Um, she had like suggested at one point, like maybe I could write my dad a letter. Um, and then when I brought that to Ali, he was like, if you do, it has to be really aggressive. Like it was just, it was bizarre. I don't really know why. Cause he, uh, he was against like psychology and like whatever bourgeois psychology. Um, but I think it was just to destabilize me and make me like trust myself less. Also, like, what could she do for me if I was like not actually telling her what the problem was, you know? Sometimes Shannon would skip the weekly appointment and pretend later that she'd attended because she didn't know what to say to the woman to explain all of her issues. She didn't mention anything in her sessions about fire this time for many months. But when Ivan wrote his open letter, something snapped and Shannon finally told her psychologist everything. And she had been like treating me for an eating disorder. She was probably so confused before then about what was going on and why I was coming to see her every week. Um, and then finally I was like, well, I'm in this organization. And she helped me like form an exit plan. She, she told me like, I didn't need to write a resignation letter, which like blew my mind. Um, she told me I should tell them that I needed to get a job because I didn't have a job at that point. And that for my like mental health, I needed to move out of the house into like my own apartment. And at that point, I think I had like been so withdrawn and I had just like been obviously like 
not well that Ali agreed to me moving out. He agreed initially to me getting a job and then he agreed to me moving out. Um, and then once I had like set that up, I just like stopped answering phone calls. It, it was really, it felt really wild. It felt like really euphoric, but also like scary. It was very strange. This story really made me think how many people in similar situations could benefit from an exit plan, carefully thought out with an external party. I like am so thankful to her. I just cut off communication with her like very soon after that, which I feel really bad about. She was probably like, what happened? But um, I think that that's why like my advice to people inside was like, just talk out loud to someone about it because it like, everything just becomes so real like all these secret resentments and questions and and doubts that you have become so much more real when you like say them out loud especially like to someone else With one of its key strongmen gone in Ivan, it doesn't seem that anything much shifted in Fire This Time's approach. Seven organisations and a number of individuals, including former and founding members of Fire This Time and Youth Third World Alliance, signed an open letter to participants at the March 16, 2008 anti-war conference that was organised by Mao. Quote, We, the undersigned individuals and organisations, call on mobilisation against war and occupation to make a public commitment to ending its disruptive behaviour and use of destructive macho intimidation tactics in the anti-war movement. Only then can there be a healthy, democratic debate on the critical subject of how activists can work together to end the deadly war in Iraq. It closed, While projecting a public image as organisations in which women play central roles, The reality is a gross caricature of women's leadership. In fact, women and young people are treated as objects to be manipulated by the supreme male leader. It is time for this charade to end. In the aftermath of her departure from fire this time, Shannon did something that I'm starting to understand is not uncommon for people coming out of cults. She ended up in an abusive relationship. I was cut off from everyone. When I, I think like the final time I stopped communication um Ali had like knew where I lived so he had like come and knocked on my door and I just like stayed as quiet as possible and didn't answer it and that was like I think he may it probably had been enough times he stopped after that but then like I contacted a couple people who had left before me um and talked to them briefly but I didn't like have anyone I just I worked at a as a welder building scaffolding, I like started dating one of the laborers who worked there. It was really bizarre. I like went and like moved with him to a different city and like existed for a year in this really weird world of like people who didn't even know like radical politics existed. He was like, I just, I did drugs all of the time. I would like get up in the morning and like do MDMA and like not tell anyone because I was just trying to like feel normal. It was very weird. I felt like pretty like manic and like out of my head most of the time. And also I'd gone from like this radical leftist organization to like 
being only around people who I like knew from work who were like really deeply sexist. But I was like, this is amazing. I just am so happy I can watch TV. And like, it was bizarre. It was such a weird shift. Um, and I did that for a year and then like things just completely broke down. Like we were like constantly homeless because I had to like give my boyfriend all my money and he was really bad with money. And then it just got to the point that I like called my mom and I was like, I need to come stay with you. And I did that. And then I actually started. I feel like that last year was like almost like an extension of the previous experience, just in like a different way, because it was so unlike me and strange. It doesn't seem to make sense that Shannon would move from an ostensibly feminist, idealistic outlook and into a deeply sexist relationship. But from the perspective of someone who's not used to having much control over their own life, it adds up. He was just like an abusive dude. He was just like, you should just like give me all your money, like cash your paycheck and I'll, I'll take care of all our money. Like, it was it was also just so strange for me, like as someone who like literally was involved in organizing like International Women's Day events. And then I'm just with this domineering, abusive man. But I don't know, maybe it's a reproduction, right, of the previous experience. And it's just like the language and like the around it is is different. But it's it really was probably the same thing. Also, I you don't know anything like I feel I left and I was like, I don't know what I want to wear. I don't know what clothes I like. I don't know. I don't know what I think about anything. Like I was ready to reject like the foundations of everything I believed because it's like you don't have any identity anymore. It took me a long time to like even be like, what kind of music do I like? Carlito Pablo wrote an article for the Georgia Strait in December 2013 about infighting in Vancouver's coalition of progressive electors as a result of Fire This Time and Marwo's involvement, entitled Cope on Verge of Civil War. The journalist reached Ali by telephone and reported that Yerevani dismissed as an ongoing slander persistent claims that the groups he has identified with operate like a cult around him. Ali is quoted as saying, They have to prove it. The proof is on their side, not on my side. A young woman who spent 2014 involved with FIRE this time posted an anonymous blog about her experiences on the 10th of March 2016. Quote, As a warning to other young people interested in revolutionary politics, stay away from FTT. She wrote, Do I think they operate as a cult? After spending a year with these people, I do not hesitate to say yes. I've heard from other activists there seems to be one in every major city, a political cult. I would describe Fire this time as a communist cult. Ali continued to control all decisions. Quote, Ali had the final word on every decision, piece of literature or procedure that left the house. That includes anything from how to hand around a donation box at an event, which car to drive, which organiser should speak to which supporter, the specific wording on a poster to where to walk when participating in another group's rally. Anything and everything had to receive Ali's stamp of approval before it became rule, policy or publication. 
She wrote of an occasion where she had greeted Ali in the kitchen after speaking with a female organiser first, apologising for forgetting to say hello previously. Quote, He says in a raised voice, You should be sorry because I am better than you. I am better than you and you should show me more respect because you are less than me. At the time this young woman was involved, Tamara and an organiser named Thomas were the only two members just over the age of 30, aside from Ali himself. They'd both been with him since they were much younger themselves. The age dynamics fed into the power imbalance, in her opinion. She also wrote that, There is a general understanding among the group that for the women who want to be real revolutionaries, they should probably not ever have children. Her impression of female organisers always being put forward for public appearances and media interviews was that this created an impression of feminist values, when in fact it is really just evidence of tokenization. She concludes that, Ultimately, in my opinion, FTT does more harm to themselves than they do to the left as a movement in Vancouver. The people that are losing out are the organisers themselves. From spending a year with them, I can say that the two traits they share with each other above all else are, one, their obsessive, cult-like worship of Ali, themselves, and the work that they do, and two, the punishing and unhealthy day-to-day lives they lead, just moments away from sheer exhaustion. I have never met a group of people so proud of such insignificant work. She concludes, Forming a cult and then telling your cult followers that they are the best of them all and that they should be in charge of all things is a horrible trick played on some very capable, intelligent and dedicated young people who can't see the truth of Ali and his ways. It is such a tragic waste of the genuine idealism, hope and hard work of the organisers that follow him, not to mention a well of toxicity for all those working hard in Vancouver to make the world a more fair and equal place. A year after his departure, Ivan started a blog to chronicle his experiences in Fire This Time, where he published his open letter. In February 2020, he archived the blog and wrote, The initial purpose of this blog was to draw out my criticisms of FTT, a group that I helped to found, in an attempt to be accountable to the communities that I had harmed through activity as a member of FTT and its front groups. I also wanted to be transparent about my process of self-criticism and reckoning with my responsibility in an abusive cult masquerading as a political group. I don't think I have fully worked through this particular question of the balance of responsibility for abuse borne by people who are being abused in a cult. Of the many things he had done during his time with FTT, Ivan wrote... My gravest responsibility and greatest mistake in four years of membership in FTT Y3WA was my consistent support of Yerevani's consolidation of power inside the group. This little man's power has placed him in a position of zero accountability. That is, he can and does get away with anything inside the group. It has meant that the members of this group are routinely terrorised by a man who considers it his duty and burden to educate them about revolutionary politics and organisational norms. He continued, Generally, my actions as a member of FTT are to be explained in terms of a cult of exceptionalism. When I believed that everything was being done for the construction of a revolutionary cadre, I could explain and justify any, and I do mean any, action. However, with that ridiculous shroud dropped from my eyes, these things are all incredibly shameful. All a series of terrible mistakes for which I am incredibly sorry. 
In terms of the future of the organisation, I wondered what Shannon thought about how many more years Ali was likely to have in him. I mean, it's hard to say, actually. I haven't thought about how old he is. It's quite confusing because that was one thing that was always secretive. Like, no one knew when his birthday was or how old he was. Um, Also, it's hard for me to say, like, what's going on because... When you're inside, you're like, all this stuff is going on all the time. You don't realize that if you're outside of it, you don't see any of that. Um, And they've moved from like this, uh, I'm in like Vancouver proper, and they've moved like all of their operations to the suburbs. Um, And then also with this like climate convergence that they're running, I'm like, I don't know how big it is or who's involved in it. I don't know what houses they have now because that's changed. Um, And it's really hard to, like, figure it out. Ivan Drury signs off the front page of his No Fire No Time blog archive with the following words. Back in the mid-2000s, there was a working consensus in the Vancouver left to not work with fire this time. The community as a whole, with few exceptions, decided that Ali Yerovani's cult was not an acceptable part of the left, that the members were being abused and that its work with other groups was always self-serving and harmful. The strategy of isolating FTT, of refusing to work with or recognise them, worked for many years. While the group did not completely die off, the damage it was able to cause in the broader community was greatly reduced. I hope that the new generation of social movement groups and fighters can renew this pledge to isolate fire this time and its various front groups. This is not a matter of sectarianism, It is a matter of fighting against cultures of abuse in left communities. In solidarity, Ivan, February 19, 2020. In terms of the other people she's still in touch with who left fire this time and associated organisations, Shannon says she knows of a number who continue to experience nightmares, which can be a sign of PTSD. She told me of another impact. I don't think anyone's involved. One person is still involved in doing any sort of activism, but I think the rest of us have been like pretty intensely like traumatized by that kind of work. I often think that's the greatest tragedy of cults I've looked into, that they're full of people who were trying to achieve something good, but instead invested incredible amounts of dedication into an organisation that wasted it or a leader like Ali Yerovani who doesn't channel it into what they're hoping to achieve. I mean, that's that's so hard because I was like, it's hard to explain to people how willing I was to like do anything. Um, and a lot of a lot of that stuff, it's like fine to do. Like it's not dangerous or harmful. Um, and then it's so awful when you're like, oh my god, like I did I didn't do anything that I, I was intending to do. Um, it's, yeah, it's, I think one of the biggest harms that he does is taking people away from being able to contribute positively. I'm going to end this episode on some words from Shannon's letter to those still in fire this time and Youth Third World Alliance, which she sent in January 2009, a year after leaving. Quote, I really believe that the dynamics of FTT-Y3WA are the same as an abusive relationship. I cannot blame members of FTT-Y3WA any more than I can blame a woman for staying with her abusive husband. This parallel continues. No member can leave FTT-Y3WA until they are ready to do it. 
All that I can do, all that your family members can do, is to express our love and concern. We will be here for you. We'll never abandon you no matter how much you cut us off. You do not need to be afraid that you've burned every bridge outside of the cult. You won't be alone and homeless if you leave Ali. Honest to God, if you call and need somewhere to go, we will drop everything to help you. Access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com slash ltaspod, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. Details at ltaspod.com. I haven't asked for a while, but if you feel so inclined, I'd love you to review the show on Apple Podcasts or share an episode on social media. And I'd also like to send a special shout out to all of my current Patreon supporters. I remain totally humbled that you sling a few bucks my way each month to support this work. It's helped me fund research and post-production assistance, and it really means a lot. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was written by me, Sarah Steele, and researched by myself and Hayley Gray. Music was by Joe Gould. Thanks to Corey Green of Transducer Audio for editing. A very special thanks to Shannon Bundock for sharing her story with me. Information sources are listed on the episode page at ltaspod.com. Thanks again to Audio Technica, presenting partner for Season 4 of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top-quality audio equipment, be sure to head to audio-technica.com.au to check out their stuff. Their range of earphones and headphones is quite ridiculous, from true wireless to noise-cancelling to professional studio, and they're known for some of the best sound around. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. Thanks for joining me and hope to catch you again next episode.